You're listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Jarlsworth and Chris Newton. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own, the room was his own, best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present and the future, Scrooge repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. That was, of course, the greatest book ever written. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. That's the book. That's the festive book. What's the festive breakfast? Well, the festive breakfast, appropriately festive, is uh, Reindeer Crumpets mm. with Marmite Tom. And I must say, the reindeer's features are somewhat diminished by the Marmite because the um, the reindeer's eyes and nose are burnt onto the bread <laughs> in brown, and the Marmite is also brown. So they sort of look a bit more like cactuses. You've managed to make a, a cheerful Christmas breakfast sound really sinister. <laughs> it wasn't my intention. But Christmas can be quite sinister. It can be quite sinister. Mm. It's time for ghost stories, isn't it? Mm, yes. Well, if only somebody had written a ghost story set at Christmas. Um, alas. Mm. We've done ghost stories. That was Tingle Hall. <laughs> which we also had crumpets for. Mm. And I, I sort of feel like, because we have crumpets in our profile picture that whenever crumpets are the breakfast, it's a bit of a, a, a special moment, a sort of punch-the-air mm. moment, like when they say the title of a film in the film. I think I'll die another day. Exactly. <laughs> the uh, Christmas James Bond film. <laughs> now, I don't think we've... Um, well, actually, we might have done by this point. Hopefully, we're not showing too much of the uh, peak behind the curtain to say that we don't always record these in sequence. No. So... What we do, we just we time travel. So mm. sequentially mm. for ourselves, mm. yeah. But for you, it's all mm. over the place. But at the point we're recording this, I don't think we've made a feature of the tea. I don't think we have. No. Which I mean, it's impossible to think that we'd be having breakfast without a cup of tea or a pot of tea. No, I mean it's in several the cups of tea. You well, yes. Just, um, yeah. Tell me about the tea. What tea are you drinking? Um, English breakfast tea. <laughs> um, I often feel kind of uh, faintly. Well, it certainly raises eyebrows when you go into uh, like a coffee shop oh and you ask for a, a pot of tea and they say, what kind of tea? And I, I kind of, I, I'm by no means a tea philistine. I like mm. drinking lots of different yeah. herbal and fruit teas. But to me, when you ask for a cup of tea, there really is only one answer to that. I remember going to the Gentle Gourmet B&B in Paris. And at that time, I don't know what it's like now, but you couldn't get a cup of tea anywhere. Mm. I sort of lived off black coffee and chips the whole time. But we went there and it was incredible. And they'd done this huge vegan spread for us, or mm. every possible breakfast item you could think mm. of, um, and a table full of different sort of fruity mm. uh, tea bags and herb mm. infusions. And, and I sort of looked around in a panic and said, where's the tea? And the American woman who owned it sort of looked at me blankly and said, mm. what do you mean? There's lots of tea. I said, yes, but where's the, the tea? Mm. I should know what I meant. These days, I'm afraid to say that... Um, it's, well, not a thread to say, but it is easy to get a, a good cup of tea in Paris because there is a, a well-known high street coffee chain <laughs> on every corner that I won't name, um, but it's easy for a star to spend a lot of books in there. Scrooge and Marley's. Yes, that's it, yeah. Um, what well, We've got Yorkshire tea. 
because mm. I'm sure it were at my house. So I asked you what tea we were drinking. Well, I didn't know. Took it out of the caddy. I had no involvement no. in the making of the tea. I was relegated <laughs> from the kitchen. Um, we've got Yorkshire tea with oat milk. That's mm. it. Mm. One of us had a Christmassy cup with reindeers on. Yeah. And it did have um, a festive bow stuck to it, but it has fallen off somewhere I always, along the I always way. put bows on cups mm. at Christmas. I cut, ever since I saw the Peep Show Christmas episode mm. with Jeremy. Hello. Can I come in yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny Tim Jeremy. Oh. <laughs> on the subject of, of Tiny Tim, a Christmas carol. What is a Christmas your... what? <laughs> a Christmas carol. <laughs> Sorry, we've gone Doctor Who already. <laughs> um, what's your Christmas Carol origin story? I'm really intrigued to know if you know what it is, because I'd be hard-pressed to tell you mine. I do know what it is, wow. and it's interesting, because a Christmas Carol has been widely adapted, and it's almost entered popular consciousness mm. as... More than the sum of its parts, somehow. It's almost like a fable that you're know you, you're born knowing. Um, but weirdly, my origin for Christmas Carol was I was probably about four years old, mm. um, so be about 1990, and um, I walked into the living room, and Scrooge was on television. Oh wow! <laughs> and. Uh, it was the scene with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. That's terrifying. Yes. With all with the faces the... inside his robe. Yes. And I saw that and I absolutely burst into tears. And oh I was my terrified. God. And I ran and out. You of changed the... your ways. I did, and that's yes. That's why yes, you now I, celebrate Christmas. I, I sort of turned away from my reckless toddler ways and became a, a mature philanthropist at the age of five. <laughs> um, but I asked my mum. Ah, oh, because of visual aid, yes. And, and I can terrifying see looking hand, at it yeah. now. Maybe we'll post this on Instagram yeah. if you're not familiar with Scrooge. Yeah. But it is terrifying. And especially even with the probably quite corny 1980s effects. But... Oh, I don't know. I watched it yesterday. Mm. Uh, yesterday morning. And I think the effects hold up quite well. Right, yeah. okay. There's I know we went to see it at the cinema a few years oh, ago. The at the region. Yeah. yeah. But um, I ran out of the room in tears. <laughs> and my mum came to comfort me, and she was telling me, oh, don't worry, love, it's based on this story called A Christmas Carol. Um, and then she told me about A Christmas Carol. So that wow. was my introduction to it. Um, and I heard that A Christmas Carol was a lovely story about joyfulness and, <laughs> and giving and um, sharing what you have with society and how everyone should come together at Christmas. And, <laughs> you know, it was a nice thing, not a scary thing. Although... But it is scary. Well, yes, it is, yes. You know, is it the original Christmas ghost story? I, mm. I think of it as being... But I would... Um, well, some people say Charles Dickens invented Christmas. Well, so. yeah. Um, sort of, certainly Christmas as we know it. Mm. But, um, like, the description of Marley's ghost and when he takes the... Um, I don't know, I can't remember what it's called, but the bandage that... Because he's oh, the corpse yes, that keeps yes. his jaw. Yeah. And it, it's actually horrible. Yes, the it's horrific. It's really yeah. frightening. Um, but for me... I, like you say, it's just so woven into the fabric of, of Western culture. Um, like, everybody knows Lord of the Rings. Even if you haven't read Lord of the Rings or even seen the films, everybody knows, oh, there's a wizard called Gandalf and there's hobbits and there's a magic ring. Like, mm. Everybody knows that, but in the same way that everyone knows Narnia. But I don't think your average person who hasn't 
seen or read Lord of the Rings would know what the story was. Mm. But everybody in the world knows that A Christmas Carol mm. is about a miser who is visited by three spirits mm. and wakes up on Christmas morning a changed man. And everybody knows that story. And I don't remember a time when I didn't know that story. And um, I, when we were at school in year seven, around the Christmas term, we were reading it at school. Do you remember? No, I don't remember reading Christmas oh, Carol at school. Yeah, with Mr. Lynham. And, right. And, you know, when you break up for, for the holidays and you basically don't have to do any work and they, <laughs> well, I was say, they wheel the video player in. They don't now because it's the future. <laughs> oh, yes. um, but they used to wheel the cabinet in and let you watch a film. The enormous television that went yeah. like three foot from the actual screen. <laughs> yeah. and the creaky top-loading video on a, <laughs> a stand with casters on. It seems so antiquated now. <laughs> anyway, and we watched The Muppet Christmas Carol. Or at least we watched as much of it as we could watch in the lesson. Mm. We just got up to the... Um, uh, the Ghost of Christmas Present song. And it, what's funny, is I, I was telling you before, I remember I saw The Muppet Christmas Carol when it came out at the UCI in Preston, um, December 1993. And, and I liked it a lot as, as a kid. You know, I thought, I remember thinking it was funny, but it didn't really, I don't think the penny dropped mm. at that time. And so I was aware of the story. but And I know I had the book because I came home from school wanting to finish reading it and we had... I've tried to find it. Uh, it was a Penguin Classics edition, and it had the cover was Marley's face on the knocker. Mm. And again, it was it was quite scary with his little spectacles mm. on his head. And but then I, I rooted out the we had the Muppet Christmas Carol on video, and that was when I watched it again and completely fell in love with it. Mm. Um, and that was at the same time that I I remember you know sitting on my own and actually reading the book. Mm. Um, but I knew the story before then, and I just don't know if I could pinpoint a time when I was introduced to Scrooge and the spirits and I feel like there are certain things you're just born knowing mm. they're, they're almost like an ancestral memory and the discography of Fleetwood Mac and all the Motown hits and the Beatles I feel that they're just kind of you know when you get um, a computer and they've preloaded it with a few example pictures and some <laughs> rubbish songs and some amateur songwriters yeah. yeah and I feel A Christmas Carol is one of those things I used the word fable before mm. It is almost like it's built into yeah. us as a, a life lesson and instruction to access, but in a very accessible way. Yeah. And what you were saying about um, the idea that Charles Dickens invented Christmas, mm. a lot of people say that. And it's a slight exaggeration, but I, I, I get it. You know, he popularised so much. But I'm going to, one of my favourite pieces of trivia ever, I'm, I'm, we've probably talked about this before, but. Um, the, the bridge in well the hundred acre wood in the winnie the pooh mm. books is based on a real wood mm. but it's not really a hundred acre wood i think it's a 10 acre wood i don't know but it's a, it's a real place i doubt a hundred acre wood exists in no, um, britain anymore britain, even no. at the times of the yeah. milne but um but that's that's the point isn't it it's the doorway to possibility mm. and magic or fairy you know um and the bridge where they play poo sticks is a real bridge oh. and um but there was a storm a while ago and the bridge was damaged I think it blew down um, and when they rebuilt the bridge instead of rebuilding it how it was they built it as it was depicted by E.H. Uh, e. Shepherd mm. in his uh, illustrations mm. for the Winnie the Pooh books and, and I, I think that's, that's my favourite piece of trivia of all time because it's that I, you know, the, the idea that the idea of something is more powerful than mm. the thing itself, and the way that something can be a part of the um, the public consciousness, 
and it and it's like is it might not be true, but it's real, mm. or, or, or mm. vice versa. It might not be real. It might not exist, but it's true. You know, like like Father Christmas, or and so similar to that. Another fa- favorite piece of trivia of mine, because a lot of people like to say, "Oh yes, Charles Dickens invented the idea of Christmas," and blah blah blah, and and oh, it didn't. Not actually... him and Coca Cola. <laughs> well, no, well yeah. I mean, it was mainly Coca Cola. <laughs> um, well, that's another thing because the, the ghost of Christmas Present in this is the Jolly Green Giant. Mm. He is the Yule Father. Is mm. much more closer to the pagan mm. Odin Yule Father than mm. the Coca Cola Santa Claus. But um, uh, well, I think Coca Cola didn't exist in Dickens' day. That can't be right. It's <laughs> unimaginable. Uh, there has always been Coca Cola. <laughs> um, and people like to say, oh, you know, it didn't really snow at Christmas in the Victorian times. That's a, a romanticism. And I think that's true, but the, the the point is, for the first seven winters of Charles Dickens's life, it snowed. Mm. So in his head, when he wrote about Christmas, he described it as being snowy, mm. e- even though it wasn't <laughs> necessarily, or it might not have snowed that year, it probably wouldn't snow the next year, but he had this idea that, oh, it always snows at Christmas. And again, that has entered the public consciousness. And I love that. I remember Stephen Moffat talking about the rules of writing a Doctor Who mm. Christmas special. And he said, rule number one, it always snows on Christmas Day. Have we mentioned that we like Doctor Who? I don't know. Should mm. we? Maybe we should talk about it some more. I'm sure they'd <laughs> like that on this, pro, on this podcast about books. <laughs> um, and even on Coronation Street, mm. it all, there's always a light dusting of snow mm. right at the very mm. end on Christmas Day. And it's ridiculous. It never snows on Christmas Day in Manchester. But it does in our heads. Mm. And I think... Because Christmas is is an idea, isn't it? It feels like it's part of the um, public intellectual property. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And you wonder sometimes when you look back at your childhood Christmases, how many of them actually happened the way you picture them and how many of them are a fabrication of your mind. But even if they are a fabrication of the mind, does that make them any less real? Well, no. I think it makes them more important. And... In terms of that idea about Christmas being, you know, I really like Halloween and I'm always going on about Halloween. Do you? Um, yeah, do you think they know that? <laughs> um, but for me, you can put up, you know, paper garlands of bats, or, you know, skeletons, whatever, and that's great. But it's Halloween, whether we make it Halloween or not, because it is that that turning of the year. You don't need to put up Halloween decorations because well, the, fall, I don't. the fallen <laughs> leaves are the Halloween decorations. Mm. You know what I mean? For me, and the nights drawing in are the Halloween decorations. But without Christmas, December is just the bleak midwinter. Mm. Christmas is a sort of man-made, that's an old-fashioned sexist term, but you know what I mean? It's a it's a construct. It's something religious, well, the religious aspect of it aside, which we'll come to in a bit, what is it? There's, there's even a line about that in the book, isn't there? About uh, if anything can be apart from its its sacred origin. Um, but I don't th- think Charles Dickens was a great proponent of religion. Well, no. I, I think he I, towed the line with it, as you had yeah. to do in those days, but I don't think um, he tried to put a deliberately religious narrative. No. And in his own philanthropic work, I don't think it had a religious bent to it, which it generally would have done in Victorian times. And I think, uh, here it is, I found it... Um, when Scrooge's nephew Fred is is defending Christmas. But I'm sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know when in the long calendar of the year men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely. And 
and he's kind of conceding you know especially at that time you couldn't have really had Chris separated Christmas from Christianity or Christ mm. but he's daring to he's saying if anything can be a part and that's what this book is I mean it embodies a lot of Christian values there's no denying that but it's surprising it's more about just human decency and you can read it either way I think I love the end of that quote as well uh, where it oh. says and to to think of people below them as if they were fellow passengers to the grave what a, yeah and it kind of unites us with that statement it kind of sweeps away class and wealth and status yeah we're all just one and we're on the same journey and we're all going to the same place so it seems like a statement to kind of cast away your preconceptions mm. about yourself or other people and just join us because we are all one and yes. the same and that yeah and that's the the sort of the the spirit of the book really mm. isn't it and that idea about christmas being a man-made thing like because it's cold and it's dark and it is you know uh like when the the, the men from the charity say a time here we go uh, we choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. That mm. the idea of, you know, being charitable when the conditions are at their hardest because it's the most important, but also to be cheerful, to yes. sing songs and put up yeah. lights and decorations in the dark and the mm. cold. And there's something very defiant about it. I suppose what I mean is without us making Christmas happen, there wouldn't be a Christmas. It's something. But I think that's that's where the magic lies. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. I always enjoy a Christmas carol that name checks Satan. <laughs> but, um, That's why I picked it. On, on the subject of, you know, sort of religion versus sort of you know you can you can be a religious person but not necessarily be a good christian and not if you're not charitable and kind and mm. forgiving and i actually I think there are many of them in the yeah, world not to <laughs> into social commentary too much but. i bought this uh paperback version of a christmas carol just to annotate mm. in preparation for this and it has a wonderful introduction uh and it references this letter um, from Dickens' self-appointed critic laureate, Lord Geoffrey, who wrote to him about... <laughs> I bet Christmas... he was a piece of work. <laughs> he wrote to him about a Christmas carol to say, Blessings on your kind heart. You may be sure that you have done more good by this little publication, fostered more kindly feelings and prompted more positive acts of beneficence than can be traced to all the pulpits and confessionals in Christendom since Christmas 1842. Oh. I mean, what a thing to say. And I think it's true, it... And it's a testament to the power of art and, and stories and writing. and But just that, I, you know, that idea that you can change people's mind with it. And I think that's that's the other thing we have to discuss is like, why is it such a classic? You know, when was it published? It was 1842, I guess. But, um, one sec. It's all really that I thought. Uh, I remember. Whilst, oh, sorry. 1843. Whilst you, oh, you found it. But yeah. um, I have. Uh, an edition of this book from 1906 that my nan gave me, um, which is very treasured to me. And sadly, I don't have it on me today. Um, but when I first got that, I was about 16 when she gave it to oh. me. And I was convinced it was a first edition. And without oh, researching wow. <laughs> the fact, I just had to tell myself it was a first edition without realising that there are actually 63 years between the publication <laughs> of the actual book and that version I've got. But still, it's... It's special because it's from my nan, and oh yeah, I, it 
probably uh, wouldn't be one of these podcasts if I didn't mention my nan at some point. No, so um, well, <laughs> it's we, a beautiful version we, of the book, normally, and it's tiny with tiny print, but I love it. We normally have the obligatory grandmother appreciation section. Oh yes, but we do, as yes. far as I'm aware, there is no grandmother character in A Christmas Carol, so it's your nan. Yeah, well, that's true. Yes, I feel like um, I suppose there's the hint of grandmotherness in the. Cratchits, you suspect yes. that Peter's about to couple and spawn. Yes, yeah, because he's about to become Surely. a man of business. Yes, yeah. yeah, but that's the only kind of real hint you get towards it. But then, I guess, is that to be expected for a book of its time? Because people probably didn't live to be grandparents as readily, well, and maybe the grandparent wasn't as much of the thing then. Maybe, but then there's the, the, the Catelyn Moran thing. Uh, no, sorry, it wasn't Catelyn Moran. It was um, Sarah Pascoe in Animal, where she was basically saying that from an evolutionary perspective, um, people with grandparents or children with grandparents were more likely to survive because there were more people oh, to look yes, after them. Okay, uh, yeah. and there was like so she was basically saying that like you know nans is you know, like superheroes because mm. if you have one, you're more likely oh, to, to yes. succeed in they life. Give you and special own, powers. You know. Well, my um, nan was certainly a superhero. Oh, she was. That's a beautiful illustration. I know, so I'm just flicking through. I know you can't see the illustrations. Yes. Um, I don't think there are any illustrations in the tiny book copy I've got. But um, at at some point I will retrieve it from the the bookshelf I've got at my dad's house and we'll post a picture of that as well because it is a lovely tiny little compact edition and it holds such love. And for me, this might shock you, but it's actually the first one I read. So I didn't actually read the book until I was about 16. Really? Yes. But then it's one of those, I mean, you do need to read it, obviously, but like I was saying, like with Lord of the Rings or, or 1984 or anything, like it's one of those books you don't need to read it to know the mm. story. But that does surprise me. Um, well, you at least read the first half of it because we did it in school in year seven. Yes, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, although I have no memory of it. So <laughs> that's strange. Obviously, made a, a huge massive, impression on me. Massive impact on me. I was probably too busy drawing mazes with Luke Moncaster. Probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of how old it is, it's so unbelievably fresh. I think. Yes, it is. Um, and I think because it's so relevant, you know. Uh, I know that's a bit of a hackneyed thing to say, but I think you know why is this book so important? Why are we still reading it and adapting it and talking about it? And I think you know, this sounds a bit sanctimonious, but like you know, we're we're the kind of people we always try and give a homeless person a, a quid or mm. a cup of tea or a pasty or something. Mm. It's it's very hard to walk past. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you do, don't you? Sometimes you, you're in a hurry to get a train or get to work, and you, you know, you. What was the thing about uh, open their shut up hearts? Sometimes you forget to open your shut up heart. And I remember one. I just finished a reread of this, um, and well, every you know the idea of you know, business. Cried the ghost, wringing his hands again. <laughs> Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. And it, you know, those it was just etched in my brain. And and I was walking, I was walking down the street, and I saw this homeless guy, and I couldn't look away mm. because of Charles Dickens's words. Oh. Uh, and I went up to him and said, "Can I get you some breakfast? Mm. <laughs> Do you want a book at breakfast?" I didn't <laughs> want the book, but you know, I went and got him a. A, a sausage roll and a cup of yeah. tea. It was a vegan sausage roll. Oh. We didn't mind. Um, and I, I'm, you know, that's this quite. It was literally the least I could do. It's the least any of us can yes. do. But what I mean is, in terms of a book that was written, you know, over a hundred years before my granddad was born. Mm. Well, not, yeah, um, can still not just move me, but affect me. Like have a, 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 a an actual impact on your day to day life. If we're going to get into social welfare, and this is possibly a tangent, but um, when I go into work, 
there's always a homeless man um, sat on the ramp coming down from Oxford Road Station. Mm. I live in Manchester. Uh, well, I do at the time we're recording this. Um, <laughs> and so many people walk past him and he says yeah. hello to everyone. And I always try and chat to him if he's there, if he's not talking to somebody else. And I think everyone thinks, oh, he's scrounging, he's just begging, he's after money. And all he wants is a chat. He wants to be treated yeah. like a human being. A fellow traveller to the grave. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I wonder if people have that sort of similar experience of reading a book like this on the train, oh. would they still think the same things towards him? Wow. Or would their cold hearts open? I think Dickens opened a lot of people's cold hearts. I think, he did. Hearts, I think so. he did. And uh, I hope that doesn't sound too self-righteous. And, and, and t- talking about Dickens as the narrator, I think it's wonderfully written how he how he pokes in so often to remark on things, mm. um, like speculating as you know whether or not... Um, a doornail is the deadest piece of ironmongery. Yes. <laughs> it's, like, it's such a wonderful little aside. It doesn't need to be there. And yet the fact that it is, it, it gives it the flavour that makes it so wonderful. And there's that quite a, not a chilling bit, it's quite comforting, but it's odd um, when he talks about Scrooge looking you know, face to face with the first mm. spirit, uh, as close to it as I am now to you. And I'm standing in spirit at your elbow. Mm. And it's mm. so wonderful. But he is, you know, that idea that all these, you know, Years and years later, you can. It's like a. I remember Neil Gaiman saying, "Books are how we communicate with the dead," mm. and it's that idea that these oh, ideas yeah, idea. are continued. Um, but, One thing that I would say allows this book to continue communicating is, as well, you touched it with the doornail. It's very funny in places. It's really funny. It doesn't yeah. sledgehammer you around the head with its morality. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, uh, I really, I really <laughs> love a bit early on that. You kind of forget when you've not read the book for a while because it's such an incidental little detail where he says, if we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's ah, father died, yes. there would be nothing remarkable <laughs> in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot simply to astonish his son's weak mind. I know. It's very funny. And it's so conversational. And, yes, it is. And the other line I love uh, for the comedy of it is... Uh, there's more of gravy than of grave yes, about you. Yeah. Well, but you know, I was thinking about that line um, because Scrooge speculates that, well, maybe, you know, this is indigestion and I'm sort of feverish. Uh, and there's all that little line that I always felt for ages was it was a bizarre little detail. Um, it, it described a saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold in his head. He's yes. got a cold. What a silly... I know it's December. It's a cold season. Um, but... When he, when he awakes from his ordeal and the bedpost is his own, there's no actual evidence to say that any of it was real. There's no, there's no evidence of the spirits. Mm. And you could, has he, has Dickens put the things in about, you know, uh, you know, more of gravy than of grave, like an under-digested crumb of beef, yeah. And the fact that he's got a cold, is it, you know, because is he haunted by his past? And yes, is he, is he it, scared it, of his future? Bringing oh, this on himself. Yeah, one lonely night, mm. he's plagued by, um, you know, I think we were... The hallucination of food yeah. poisoning. And the beautiful thing about it is it doesn't matter. No. Because it's, it's, it might not be real, but it's true. Because the effect that the experience has on him has a tangible effect. Yes. You know, a, a, you know, a tangible result, rather. And it's a bit like just before we started recording, there's a, a preface to this by Charles Dickens, um, where he describes this uh, ghost story, the ghostly little book, he describes it. And he uh, he says, may it haunt their house pleasantly and no one wish to lay it. And oh, that, that, yes. that, 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 you know, that haunting can be a, a pleasant thing, mm. you know, because it hints at more than, you know, the, the 
mortal realm or yes, whatever. Yes, yeah. But, it's um, an afterlife or before life. But that idea um, that something can haunt you that isn't a ghost, in this case a book, mm. and is, ha- is Scrooge just haunted by... Your poor decisions yes. and regret, and, yeah. But I like and, and, and his soul was always there. That's quite a beautiful thought. Yeah, um, and I like you know you could tie that to the religious thing because like spirit, mm. you know, anything that hints at afterlife or or sort of supernatural beings, you sort of get drawn into the the religion debate. Like, is there a god? Is there a plan? Um, and you can read the book either way. You know, you can say, oh well. Yes, there there is a God and the spirits are emissaries of Christ mm. or whatever to make him change his ways. If you want to read it yes. that way, and I wouldn't argue with anyone's interpretation that that was the case, but that's not my interpretation, you know. And but the brilliant thing is, it doesn't matter. And I love throughout he always when he talks about past, present, and future, and ta- and the word time, he always capitalizes them, which mm. I think is brilliant. And nature, he capitalizes as well. It, does that carry on into other books, do you know? I mean, other Dickens books. I don't know. Um, I think the only other Dickens book I've actually read all the way through is Great Expectations. Oh, that, oh, did, oh right, okay. it up. I'm yeah. going to open it on a random page and see. I'm very familiar with some of the other stories, of course, but... No mention mm. of, of time uh, or past, present or future on, on this well, random page. That's Dickens. <laughs> it's page 92, mm. chapter 11, for anyone who's interested. <laughs> um no, a disappointing. Please check your copies and write in. Send your answers on a postcard. Lack of capitalization. Mm. Uh, well, maybe that's 19. unique for this book. Yeah. No, I'd be here all day flicking <laughs> through Great Expectations. We should do this one day, though. I, yes. I do love this book. Yeah. Um, yes, we should do Great Expectations. I mean, if we do another series. Oh well. Who knows? Well, yes. Maybe this, no one's listening. This is the last episode this of this is the series. Final. This is the so, Christmas yes. special. It is. Yeah. <laughs> this is where all the satisfying conclusions to all the little threads of drama and all the <laughs> mysteries we've lain throughout the year are now answered. You finally find out who the villain was. It, Talking about pantheons of literature. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of our our own crumb laying, which of course <laughs> we haven't really done because we're talking about other people's and the canon of Dickens' other work. I just want to come back to that Hamlet quote. I do oh, yeah, wonder yeah, yeah. on this reading of it for this podcast, if in mentioning Hamlet so early on, it was a kind of conscious effort to put himself up there with the greats. Like he's saying, I am in the same realm as Shakespeare. And it was an attempt to immortalise the book I so feel... that it would sort of last for the ages. I feel very self-conscious now because in our book... The Book of Sins, we quite heavily reference a Christmas carol. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the passing of the baton. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If we can be so lofty to say so. (laughs) But I think it's more... The eight readers of the Book of Sins will... Or uh... or paying a debt, not forward, but you know what I mean? When you feel indebted to something, it personally and culturally, you sort of... You have to reference it. That's the the Stephen Moffat thing of, of saying, holding it and saying, this is why it's important. Yes, that was very beautiful. But, was that uh, from his Oxford lecture? Or was that... Uh... Um, I can't remember. Mm. YouTube has discovered that I like Stephen Moffat, <laughs> uh, so now every video I watch is... How did it work <laughs> out? I don't know. Um, but just back to that idea of, you know, Dickens inventing Christmas and Christmas being a, a concept before it's a, it's a tangible thing... A tangerineable thing. Oh, <laughs> delete that. That was terrible. <laughs> um, again, the narrative voice, he, he writes with such joy and vivacity. And and I think you could, despite what we said about this being a, a ghost story, I think he's actually quite frightening in certain parts. Um, 
you could see it as a really, really saccharine book, a mm. smaltzy book, and I think a lot of people do, and possibly rightly so. I've um, never thought of it like that, and it hadn't occurred to me that people think of it like that until now. Well, maybe they don't. I've never, mm. you know, I just assume everybody mm. knows it's the best book ever written. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, but I've got, a, having just, you know, on my uh, revisiting it for this podcast, and I say revisiting like I don't read it every year religiously. <laughs> At least once. Um, yeah, I always read it once, but listen to the audiobook about mm. ten times. But we'll, Are you going to say which audiobook? Well, we'll talk about right. that later. <laughs> oh, yes. Um... But I do wonder, um, into, especially with sort of the Christmas past bits, um, it's the the, the joy. Um, hang on, there's the bit with the fiddler at the feast, and oh yes, and it's it's so di- it's so Dickensian. Yeah, yeah, here we go. So the fiddler's just finished playing. The fiddler plunged his its hot face into a pot of porter, <laughs> especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began again, though there were no dancers yet, as if the other fiddler had been carried home exhausted on a shutter, and he were a brand new man resolved to beat him out of sight or perish. <laughs> it's so wonderful, and, um, and it, it seems kind of... Um, over the top. Mm. It's, you know, it's quite enthusiastically written, and... It, it seems almost an exaggeration. There were mince pies and plenty of beer. That's my favourite <laughs> line in the book. Um, but you almost think because Scrooge is an old man at this point, mm. and he's seeing something again, but through he's he's seeing it for the second time, but through very different eyes. And I almost wonder if he, Dickens is making a point of saying what would have seemed ordinary, just a fiddler playing and then striking up a game without rest in between. Say he's a man of 20 or whatever, mm. would be unremarkable when you're also 20. But when you're, however old Scrooge is supposed to be, 60 or 70, you would just look almost about at the vibrancy of youth yes. and it would seem almost miraculous mm. to you. And, and you think, oh, if only I had appreciated it more. And, and just the way that Dickens... Uh, there's a bit where he just talks about food. You know, when you think of Christmas Carol, you think, oh yeah, ghosts and Tiny Tim and Scrooge. and But... I think it's probably the best anyone's ever written about food. <laughs> Listen to this. There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions, shining in the fatness of their growth like Spanish friars and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the <laughs> girls as they went by and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. He's, he's talking about onions. I know, I was going to say, I also talked on that because never has anybody made onions sound so appealing. So I mean, saucy. They're a staple that <laughs> yeah. go in food at best and I, they add a bit of flavour to it. But yeah. have you ever looked at an onion with the kind of luster that Dickens obviously looks at these onions? No, I mean... And I, the luster with the onions looking back at the girls. I know. The onions then, are sentient. And this is my favourite about the apples. Uh, there were Norfolk biffins, squab and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons and in the great compactness of their juicy persons, of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper, paper bags and eaten after dinner. Ooh. The apples are urgently beseeching to be <laughs> not just eaten, but carried home in paper bags. You can hear them rustling. You can taste the apples. They're like sirens. And on the one hand, you can say, well, it's Dickens being Dickens mm. and being really over the top. And and, and that's, that is his style. But on the other hand, it's, it's Scrooge who's taken no joy in life. Yes. Suddenly seeing the world from a different perspective mm. and saying, oh, my God, everything's beautiful. And apples are beautiful. And chestnuts look like they're wearing little waistcoats. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? and I don't think it is actually overly sentimental. Well, a child would think about things. If the child had the vocabulary... And they were seeing things for the first time. 
They would describe them like that. It's so funny you should say that because there's a quote that I underlined and thought, I, I, what does it mean? And it, it's that when he's talking about, um, I should have liked, I do confess, to have had the lightest license of a child and yet mm. been man enough to know its value. Yes. That's what yes. you're talking about. Is mm. exactly it. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's funny that 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 marriage you know, coming together of that your, your childish self and your older self is the past the present and the future yes and i think in terms of that idea of are the spirits real or is scrooge just haunted by his mistakes or his regrets it's because christmas generally because it's a time for traditions and habits like you you have christmas dinner you go here you do this or if you you, know, you might go to church or you might see a particular family member when you do the same things every year you can't it's like all the years line up and you can't help but compare it mm. to previous christmases which can be quite melancholy like yes. when there's an empty seat at the dinner table or you know or it can be a, an optimistic thing if or oh, next year there'll be another addition to the family mm. or and um you know that i think when we did the time traveler's wife episode we were talking about the fact that we're all time travelers and they went to the, in our the way that we think about our lives we don't just concentrate on one moment we're always dwelling on the past and thinking about the future and i think unless you're a very devout buddhist well yeah but but never more so than at christmas yeah and i don't think buddhists celebrate christmas no i, I don't <laughs> think they do but maybe that's uh, appropriate i mean i'm sure there's a school of mental health thinking that would say we would all be better if we lived in the moment and didn't focus on the past and present but surely you'd lose something in that as well it, it depends what you mean by living in the moment. And I think in that Dickensian sense of appreciating just a bag of apples, well, there is so much joy to behold. And that's why I think that's why the ghost of Christmas present is the most joyous of the yes. spirits. Because he's like, he's just, you know, he's he's here and now and mm. he thinks everything is succulent and wonderful yes. and joyous. And sometimes you miss out on how joyous things are because you're too busy dwelling on the past over mistakes that you can't change. Well, know? I suppose there's a difference between dwelling on the past and mistakes, but still holding her in a child because yes i would perhaps argue that the most well-rounded amongst us are those that still have a sense of our inner child but we can carry that with us yes. as an adult and face the world as an adult and i think that's what scrooge is rediscovering his inner child has been buried yes under all these years of bitterness and mean-spiritedness and contempt for the lowly man or the lowly human yeah you're absolutely right and this is him reconnecting with his inner child somehow and he, he finds the joy and he can hold it with an adult world and he can use that joy to bring benevolence and joy to other people yes yeah they are here i am here the shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled they will be i know they will and <laughs> and that's for me that's why it's why i love this book so much and why i i think it is tapped into the the popular psyche mm. because that I think there's a temptation to read it as Bob Cratchit to to, yes. to associate with Bob Cratchit because we've all got that miser in our lives, whether it's a father or a landlord or a boss, a or bank manager, a bank manager, um, and you want there's this person who's making your life difficult, and you think you know what if they were if only they would be visited by three spirits in the night and wake yes. up kinder and give me lots of money or stop hassling me or just be nicer to me but that will never happen because mm. you can't change the world you can only change yourself yes and i think true. that actually the reason this resonates is that we are we're all scrooge mm. we might not necessarily be mean people or, or miserable but especially as you get older you lose exactly what you were talking about you lose that magic you lose that childishness and i think scrooge wakes up at the end of this book 
that's that's why I wanted to read the quote at the beginning about yes, the bedpost was his own. Mm. Every day you wake up and the bed is your own, and yes. the time before you is your own. And it's about a man who. It's such a cliche, but he wakes up and realizes that today is the start of the rest of his life. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I'm alive now, and I can be a force for good. Mm. And it does, you know, I can't change what's been, but I can affect what happens next. And mm. uh, and I think that, like, it's a wonderful life. In some, I think it shares a lot more with Christmas Carol than people would think. Because oh yes, I think it does. Because I thought that'd be an accepted. Thing. I want to call it. I assume it was like a then contemporary interpretation. Well, yeah, maybe maybe, maybe people do think that. I don't know, but I want to call him James Stewart. George Bailey, that's the character's name. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, yeah he's um, George Bailey is not a, a mean or miserable man. In fact, the Mister Potter is the Scrooge mm. of the story. But that's you know, in, that's an interesting interpretation in in terms of like, well, you could hope that Mister Potter gets visited by three spirits, or you could you could be the change Scrooge mm. and bring joy and happiness. And I think with Scrooge, it's he realises, he wakes up and, and says, oh, I can do good. Whereas with George Bailey, it's, oh, I have done good. Yeah. And, but mm. both of them, it's about realising how, well, how wonderful life is. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, you shouldn't waste mm. a second and just be kind mm. and, and be loving and be happy, you know. I love the joyousness of the the end of it. Um, <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? That, really, for a man who had been oh. out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh, the most illustrious laugh, the father oh, of a long, long line, line of brilliant, brilliant laughs. laughs. Oh. It's just so heartwarming yeah. and so fulsome. And, and I love the idea that he says shaving is a difficult task even oh, when you're yes. not dancing while yes. you do it. If, if, what does he say? Oh. If, even if he'd cut his nose off he would have put a sticking plaster on yes. and be done. It just, yes! <laughs> you know, I have to remind myself of that so often in life. Oh. Like, you know what? You're alive and people that you love are alive and yes. so what if you've cut your nose off? <laughs> put a sticking plaster of it on and just get out there and, and, and just be glad to be alive. And there's that one, in terms of getting out there and being glad to be alive, I remember sending you this quote last year um, when he's just walking around. Is he never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. And he's just walking around, looking yes. at... He walked about the streets, watched the people hurrying to and fro, patted children on the head, questioned beggars, and looked down into the kitchens of houses. Questioned beggars, isn't that interesting? Because yes. what you're saying about... He's not giving them money or food that we know of. He's treating them as fellow travellers to the grave and talking to them and, and I love that after this great awakening he just spends the morning walking around you don't really get that in the adaptations no it's always the, the cratchits yes well, that actually straight happens away. two days later doesn't it yes. or it's a little while later you know? yeah and he goes to his nephew's first yes. on Christmas oh. but it's evening by that point yes yeah. as somebody who loves walking generally and walking around cities and observing yes. life you know, that's a big it pastime al of always life. makes me think it's, of you oh thing. well there was something I found really magical about that that he just kind of has to almost detach himself from life and walk around and observe it and it's like he's yeah. drinking it in again like this oh. is what he has literally been blinkered and he's probably walked through the streets between yeah. his counting house and his home with his head with his down head his eyes ignoring down. everybody yeah. and shunning everybody and all of a sudden he just wants to drink in the world yeah and i find that really magical yeah and let's say that that's every one of us every mm. day you know um and what i love about the, the very end i've made a note here i put john and yoko um <laughs> What I love that you know because he is Scrooge is a lunatic at the end. He's, yes, he he's, is. He's yes. whooping and dancing and yes. you know, <laughs> and it's brilliant. And it says uh, some people laugh to see the alteration in him, 
but he let them laugh mm. and little heeded them for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened upon this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the onset oh, what a wonderful outset. philosophy yeah. and he says and knowing that such as these would be blind anyway he thought quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins as have the malady in less attractive forms. Oh. Isn't that wonderful? Like, that's a great lesson for kids as well. Yes. If you're happy, it doesn't matter if people are laughing at you. And it really it reminded me of John and Yoko during the whole sort of bed piece baggism mm. thing. And, and um, some journalist was interviewing them and saying, you know, but people are laughing at you. And John Lennon said, um, if the least we can do is give somebody a laugh, we're willing to be the world's clowns. It's the least we can do because everybody's talking about peace. Yes. I thought, how wonderful, how absolutely wonderful. And uh, and talking of music, I was really, you know, I make no secret about the fact that this is my favourite book of all time. I have several favourite books of all time, but, but this is... <laughs> I, I think that's every episode. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to talk about a book unless it's the best book ever written. <laughs> but this one... About this... 140 <laughs> best books ever written, but at this, least. Yeah, but this is the bestest book ever written <laughs> because it's Christmas. Um, but honestly, I, I, you know, if you put a gun to my head... As I've said, Adrian Mole is my Desert Island book, mm. but I think just for the sheer joy of it, the book that reminds me just to be glad to be alive, this mm. is the one. But um, and also, Fairy Tale of New York is my favourite song, as you know. So that's why I love December so much, because I get to read A Christmas Carol and listen to A Fairy Tale of New York. And in that same way, because I, I guess I was kind of thinking about this more analytically this time, just ahead of doing the podcast, I realised that there is a parallel with this and Fairy Tale. In the sense mm, that I've not thought about that. Before. No, I hadn't. But it's the structure of the song, past, present, and future, mm. because it starts. You know the, um, the you know the, the the characters, the couple in Fairy Tale of New York meeting for the first time could be like Scrooge and um, oh, what's her name? Um, is it Elizabeth? I can't remember. Lily Betts. No, anyway, Scrooge's mm. lost love. Mm. Um, Belle. Is it Belle? Um, but then, and then there's the, the, the disillusionment, and that's the present when they've forgotten to, to, to be glad to be alive. And yet, and people think of fairy tale as a kind of uh, cynical or, or sneering song, because it's the, the idea like, you know, the blossoming romance that deteriorates. But I think they ignore the ending, which has that moment of hope. You know, you took my dreams from me when I first found you. I kept them with me, babe, can't make it on, you know. I built my dreams around you mm. and I thought, yeah, they're still dreaming and there's hope for the yes. future. And that's what Scrooge doesn't have mm. at the start. And and it's almost like um, the, the, you know, the Oscar Wilde thing about being in the gutter, but looking up at the stars. Yeah. And in a way, that's what Christmas is in mm. terms of objectively, like winter is this cold, dark, hard time. But we're looking at the stars. Mm. You could put a religious interpretation on that if you want. Or it's a it's a human made thing. It's, a, you know, we put up lights and pictures of stars like we believe in magic because we need to believe in magic to get us through. And maybe that is in itself the magic, you know. The boys of the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay And the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day um, I I always, since I was a kid, I've always loved fairy lights and tinsel mm. and Christmas trees And I think there is something we need about that yeah. at this time of the year and Halfway out we, of the We dark. need that kind of hope um, But not to give this too much of the kind of uh, bleak thing i can't help feeling with climate change mm. um that the seasons have shifted somewhat and yeah. winter seems to start later yeah. and uh and finish later and it kind of more starts in january and goes yeah. until about march now 
So I'm going to start this as a campaign to extend Christmas throughout the entire month of January as well. January needs something. It does need something, yes. But that's in, because technically Christmas begins on Christmas Day and there are 12 <laughs> yes. days of Christmas going yeah. to January. But it, the amount of people these days that call the 1st of December the first day of Christmas... It's hard not to think of it as the first. Well, it's day the of first Christmas. day of Advent, yeah. but like people have argued that it's a step. You know, it's just um, Christmas not becoming less of a secular festival mm. and more just Winter Fest X. <laughs> but I think we need that magic. And whether or not I get in trouble for saying this, but like whether or not you choose to believe the the the, the nativity story mm. as literal, you know, the birth of the Son of God, or in a metaphorical sense of like rebirth and hope, like the year is dying. But the sun, the sun mm. will be born anew <laughs> and there'll be life and hope. And you know what I mean? And mm. That's more of a pagan thing. Uh, and I like, again, that right at the end where Scrooge goes for his walk, he goes to church. He says he went to church. And it's almost like the doors are closed to us. Dickens mm. doesn't say what he believed or what he felt or what he did because that's, that's Scrooge's personal thing. And again, yeah. I like how the, it's open to interpretation as to whether or not you see this as a purely sort of Christian thing or a, you know something that isn't spiritual mm. it's all just in his head because he's he's made mistakes or is it something else is it is it is it something pagan and that idea of yule and and because you know the winter solstice has always been has always been and <laughs> but christmas was was put there you know to replace traditions and in that sense it's always been the coldest hardest time where people need to be nice to each other mm. um but I do love that idea that the ghost of Christmas present in this is basically Father Christmas, <laughs> you know, but he's the original, you know, the green Father Christmas. It's like in the Father Christmas, Letters from Father Christmas by Tolkien. Oh. Even Tolkien, who was a Catholic, his his Father Christmas refers to his grandfather, the Yule Father, and his green brother. Mm. So he knows there is this pantheon <laughs> of these beings. But, so we've talked about the, the ghost of Christmas present, but um, we haven't really talked much about the ghost of Christmas past. No. Um, which I find a really interesting thing. I love the description of it. I say it because the Ghost of Christmas Past is often female in the adaptations, but I think it's actually a male in the book, but it's it's kind of, it's so sort of not quite human. It's difficult to, I sometimes find it difficult to envisage, like the, the idea that it's, um, the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with 20 legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body of which dissolving parts, no outline would be visible in the dense gloom. <laughs> what? <laughs> filmmakers decided to depict that as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, is that because, is it memory? Is it like the, the infinite-ness of... Uh, so, there are so many past Christmases mm. like how can you combine all those elements and all those memories and all those emotions and experiences into one being it's, it's all over the place isn't it and yet the spirits themselves often describe themselves as being short and fleeting their visits to yes. the earth so yeah. again it suggests that is this something that is in Scrooge's head and is it his sort of projection yeah. of his own guilt towards these things well I love the idea in that vein that here it is, because um, it's and sometimes 
like in the Muppet Christmas Carol, it's depicted as like a little girl. And it does say a strange figure, like a child. But then he says, yet not so like a child as like an old man. (laughs) And I love this idea that it's sort of simultaneously a child and an old man because of what you were saying about how Scrooge is an old man. And yet it's about him reconnecting with his inner child. Mm. And this being is kind of both put together. And I love the idea. It uh, It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand. And in singular contradiction of that wintry em- emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. I like, mm. you know, it's kind of, it's winter and it's summer, and it's old and it's young, because the past was a long time ago, therefore it must be old, yet we were young in the past. So mm. the past is, is both old and young simultaneously. But yeah, I loved just that, that imagery of the, the holly contradicted with the flowers. It really reminded me of um, the, the best chapter in the Graveyard book by Neil Gaiman, uh, dance macabre um when they talk about um blossom in winter and then there's strange occurrence and it being a time when the living and the dead can dance together and it's and it's really weird it's like sort of people sort of acknowledging their, their mortality um but it's something that they never speak of and it only happens on that rare occasion when there's blossom in winter it's such a beltane thing well, no, I, guess... I don't. I don't think it's a thing. Oh, really. right. It was more okay. of a sort of an abstract concept about the living and the dead mm. coexisting, and you have that here with Scrooge and the yeah. spirits, you know, <laughs> um, and and the the ghost of Christmas yet to come mm. is terrifying. And yes. I love, I love that in the Muppets version, it's they still didn't, terrifying. They didn't do a cutesy-fied yeah. version. That no, we'll do a really scary one. <laughs> and in in Scrooge, especially like there's. there's I mean, you can't really go wrong, but I've never seen a bad version of the Ghost of Christmas yet to come. No. <laughs> uh, and I remember, well, you don't, but when we were doing it at school, I remember our English teacher saying um, he wears a hood and you can't see his face because nobody knows what the future looks oh, like. Oh, yes, that was so that's really cool. cool. Oh, yeah, he doesn't speak because mm. he's just unknown and unknowable. And um, I love all the, uh, yeah, I love those scenes. And you really feel that it's straight because Scrooge. He's almost saved by the ghost of Christmas present. Mm. You feel like he could maybe wake up then and having, you know, seen the Cratchits and seen his nephew that he would be better. And you feel quite sorry for him. Yes, you almost do in that that last section. Because he's so... Sorry. Also kind of weirdly ignorant to what he's seeing for so much of that, the, I know, that section it's... when he's been shown the people talking about stealing the curtains from the dead man's bed and he's I looking know. at the body and it's like who could this <laughs> who be? Could that be? It's yeah. you Scrooge, you're so obvious. I know. Come is on just, man. Is it I know you're tired, or... it's been a long night. But... Because yeah. um, when he sees it, you know, he said, I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. Mm. It's a piece of that, you know, basically that I, I know you're here for my benefit and he's, I'm prepared to bear your company and do it with a thankful heart. And, mm. and you think, oh God, he's so receptive because he's quite grumpy to yes. the ghost of past. And, and now, you know, he's willing, but will he not speak to me? <laughs> it gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. And it is, there's something about that, about your own mortality and sort of, you know, and there's no getting around the fact that this hooded fa- phantasm, it looks like the Grim Reaper a mm. bit as well. And that idea that you can plead with death and say, will you not speak to me? But all it's doing is pointing towards the future. Yes. And, well, you know, your life will end at, at one point. And there's descriptions of him trying to grasp like something oh, God. about the spirit. And yeah, he's, he's pulling so, at the robe and yeah, but then you know, becomes, he can't it, hold on to anything. Yeah, but it dwindles down into yes. a bedpost because he's not dead yet. Yes. He's alive. And, oh, and one thing I... Uh, we should wrap up soon uh, and go and have Christmas dinner. <laughs> um, uh, actually, I think it's only the 1st of December when this is going out. <laughs> I don't care. Let's have Christmas dinner every day. Uh, there's a really, really poignant bit 
in the uh, in the, the first of the spirits when he sees Belle uh, as as an old matron and she's married mm. and has kids and and there's the regret of him realizing that's the life he could have had had he not been so sort of business minded. Um, also, I love Dickens' description of their household. Um, he's not like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life with the, why do we have to have all these kids anyway? <laughs> it, it, you know, there were not 40 children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting itself like 40. The consequences <laughs> were uproarious. Like It sounds like bedlam in that mm. house. Their children running around screaming and it could be quite stressful and unpleasant, but Dickens writes it with like, oh, how wonderful. The children are excited yes. and playing and it's just, you know. Um, but then there's this real sorrow um, because is it that she has a daughter um, and Scrooge says he thought da, 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 da. It, his his regret at the thought that such another creature quite as graceful and as full of promise might have called him father and have been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life oh. and his sight grew very dim indeed <laughs> and just the idea of like past and future and sp spring and you know winter mm. and summer together you know against all odds and that idea that he and you know as as a as a, a childless person myself you know through choice you know um but it does it's one of those things that does make you sort of wonder oh would it be nice to have somebody who would be a springtime in the haggard winter of your life and you feel so sorry for scrooge because he's missed that opportunity and talking. yet it just um at the end the very very end of course we know that tiny tim who did not die, <laughs> uh, Scrooge became a second father. I'm making that up. Oh, here we go. No, it does say he became yeah, a second yeah, yeah. father. <laughs> Which it almost not... seems like... <laughs> a little bit like, where did that come from? Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I love that. He, yeah. yeah, to Tiny Tim, who did not die, not in capitals. <laughs> he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the good old city knew. And how wonderful that Tiny Tim is the, the springtime in the yes, hand of winter of yeah. Scrooge's life. And it just goes to show you don't need to be, you know, for people who can't have children or people who adopt or, mm. you know, you don't have to have biological mm. children to be a father or a mother or a, you know, um, a, a sort of mentor figure or guardian to mm. somebody. You just need to be kind to everyone and, and be there for people. And I, I just think it's so wonderful. Look at that illustration of um, Scrooge sharing uh, a bowl of, is it Hot Bishop? Or whatever oh, yes. With, with yeah. Bob Cratchit. And Tiny Tim, since we've not touched on him much, it's funny, it's almost become a cliche and kind of, oh, you know, get out the box of hankies <laughs> when you talk about Tiny Tim. Oh, but, but I can't believe how much it affected me again reading the book. Every time. Yeah. Every time. It is heartbreaking. And... You know, you could say that Dickens is deliberately... Well, he is and deliberately he is pulling because on of his heartstrings. Own, his, and... his past, you mm. know, because his parents were um, in the workhouse, weren't they? Yes. It was he even for a while, mm. you know. His sympathy was very much with the poor. I think it was. I read a good quote about that. I'd um, heard that Dickens in general, but also Christmas Carol, was very... Um, inspirational to Marx. I don't know if that's true or not, but you can see it. Yes, it, can it doesn't do, yeah. seem, it's kind of, it's socially aware and it's a very spiritual novel. You don't think of it as being in, inherently political, but it is. It's, it's a massively political novel. I read a lovely quote by Simon Callow, who oh. should know a thing or two about Dickens, having played him more than once. He said, The reason I love him so deeply is that having experienced the lower depths, he never ceased till the day he died to commit himself 
both in his work and in his life, to trying to right the wrongs inflicted by society. Above all, perhaps by giving the dispossessed a voice. Oh. From the moment he started to write, he spoke to the people, and the people loved him for it, as do I. Oh, that's lovely. Mm. It reminds me, I'm just flicking through this now. We have the benefit of recording this episode in my house, and I'm next to my bookshelf, which is why I keep I'm grabbing bookshelves. <laughs> um, I keep getting my eyes caught by different books on there, wanting to explore them all. Hey, wait till you see my breakfast shelf. <laughs> uh, I can't find I'll be flicking through this all day, but it's a wonderful book. Uh, it's part of the Little History series. It's called The Little History of Economics, and it's much more interesting than it sounds. Yes, I'm not and... sold on this one. Are we going to be discussing this one on a book of breakfast? <laughs> We're but... going to do a whole series, one episode in each chapter. Look, there's a chapter called Going for Gold. What could be better? <laughs> Um, I remember there was a bit in here. Oh, here we go. Uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, was talking about how usury lending, i.e. sort of lending money and taking interest on it, uh, was basically the most evil thing in the world. Um, because he said that even murderers sleep. <laughs> and the idea that if somebody lends you money, it gives you a loan with interest on it, that that interest is going up at all times, mm. constantly. Um, and he thought it was, it was you know, against God. You know, it was the greatest sin. And, and there's something in that. It's very interesting that of all the, the things Scrooge could be, he's a moneylender. I was thinking about, in terms of the financial crisis, I wonder if there are any, I was looking for them, articles or podcasts about the significance of Scrooge as a banker. Yeah, Strangely yeah. enough, I couldn't find anything. But Wow. Maybe you should write one. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll lend you this book that you're so fascinated by. <laughs> no, 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 please get it away from me. Get it away from me. <laughs> Don't want to do learning. <laughs> well, I think that's about it. My time upon this globe is very brief. I believe it will end upon the stroke of 12. Um, but of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Book at Breakfast if we didn't talk about adaptations. Mm. Now, we might be here all day. I was going to say, we could spend all this as long talking about the adaptations. Is, is this the most adapted book in the world? Mm, interesting. I'm going to I'm going to say that it is. I mean, I've got, got, got a base on Well, feeling. actually, is the Bible the most adapted book in the world? No, go on then. <laughs> Maybe this um, is the second most. I've got this this episode, this uh, issue of Dark Side magazine here. It's the Christmas special, um, and there's an article about um, yeah uh, about Christmas Carol in it, and, and it lists all well, I don't know if all, but the many adaptations. And what's interesting, there are some in here that I wouldn't have thought of, uh, and I was delighted to see. Doctor Who in oh, there. Oh, yes. Because and Blackadder. And Blackadder. Well, <laughs> at least that's Blackadder's Christmas Carol yes. and he's called Ebenezer Blackadder. <laughs> but just in case you don't know, but let's be honest, by now, if uh, if you're not Doctor Who fans, you probably won't be listening to this podcast anymore. It looks like Alan Partridge. <laughs> uh, sorry, you can't see what we're looking at. <laughs> Stop giggling. Um, but then the Doctor Who 2010 Christmas special was called a Christmas Carol. Mm. And it was funny, until I read this article, I hadn't actually thought of it as an adaptation. Oh, interesting. Uh, because, because, I had. I mean, yeah, and it is. it's a very left-field adaptation of it, and he takes a lot of artistic licence and reinvents it, sort of taking the idea of the, fa the fable, yes. the Christmas Carol, and putting his own spin on it. But it, it is. Yeah, it's, it's just such a, a wild adaptation that within the story... They reference Dickens, you know, and the idea he gets the idea to change the miser's ways because mm. a, a Christmas Carol is yeah. played. Amy says, "What's that? A Christmas Carol?" Oh, <laughs> um, but then I thought, well, actually, yeah, because Scrooge, 
is about putting on a TV adaptation of A Christmas mm. Carol, or Scrooge, as they call it in America, which I don't approve of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's the same story, isn't it, fundamentally? And I think the Doctor Who Christmas Carol is just absolutely wonderful. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it, because especially their spin on The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come mm. is, is wonderful, and you'll just weep and weep and weep. Whether this is relevant to this podcast or not, I don't know, but uh, you might be interested to know that last night I couldn't sleep, and... Uh... I was reading uh, on a Doctor Who forum, as I often do when I can't sleep, and they were doing a vote about the best Doctor Who Christmas special. Oh, my God. I mean, it's twice, 15 to it's twice upon a time. It is, but in this <laughs> poll, A Christmas Carol won, and I was really surprised to see that, that it won over oh, the Christmas Invasion, or yeah. oh, that's Twice brilliant. Upon a Time, or Last Christmas, but even though it's not my favourite, I was I really mean, glad that it was the people's I mean, favourite. possibly my second mm. favourite. But anyway... Um, we may cut that. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the the big one for me, and we've touched on this before, is The Muppet Christmas Carol. Yes. Uh, I, I, I mean, we we wrote a book, a couple of books, about uh, a couple of Change the Record Doctor Who fans <laughs> several years ago. Uh, and we like to play at them being quite ignorant. And uh, there's a line in there <laughs> where they're talking about <laughs> Charles Dickens' Muppet Christmas Carol because <laughs> they think that... Charles Dickens wrote a story about Muppets. And I always really love that line. Yeah. I was very proud of that. Um, but it, it almost... I think for our generation especially, the Muppet yeah. Christmas Carol... Definitive. It is definitive. And Michael Caine's uh, performance is well, yeah, incredible. And, and a few considering years, he's playing against stuffed animals. A few years ago, there was an article um, all about the making of Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm. And I thought, dare I read it? Mm. Because if they're a bit sarky or flippant or it will break my heart. But I, I read it anyway and it was wonderful. Mm. And what I didn't know, because Christmas, I remember talking of Twice Upon a Time in the build-up to that, uh, Mark Gatiss was saying that the episode was happy, sad, like Christmas itself. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, because Christmas is very melancholy. Mm. And that's the, I know it seems bright and cheerful, but it's, it, we, we embrace the brightness and the, and, and the jollity to dispel the darkness but the, the darkness is there in that David Lynch way mm. so it is a melancholy time and even though Christmas Carol, Muppet Christmas Carol it's, it's a children's film and it's got it's cheerful it's got songs in it it begins and it, it hits me every time it's so melancholy the very first thing you see after the Disney logo is in loving memory of Jim Henson oh yes and you get that wonderfully mm. sad music and and what I hadn't realised because I'm not even though I love this film probably my favourite film ever I'm not the. Is that in the same way that the book is your favourite book ever? Yes, is it's it, the best one of the hundred and forty. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and um, it was the first. Yeah, you know, I'm not a big Muppets fan. I mean, like, you know, I don't know loads, and I hadn't realised till I read this article that this was the first thing that the Jim Henson Studios. Studio Workshop mm. did after he died. Yeah, and it's his son. Sorry, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. No, anyway, no. but. Um, and he'd taken over and he was doing the voice of Kermit and, and, and he apparently, you know, in this article he was saying he didn't know if he could carry on. He, he said it's too too big a legacy. And he said to a friend, we need to do a Muppet film and it has to be the best film ever made. It's Brian Brian, Henson. I knew that, of course. <laughs> so it has to be the best film ever made. And whoever this friend of Brian Henson's was said, well do A Christmas Carol, because that's the greatest story ever oh. written. So if, if the script is the greatest story ever written, then you're already halfway there. Yeah. Um, and they approached Michael Caine and explained what they wanted to him. And he said, I'm going to play it like I'm playing Hamlet at the Globe. Oh, wow. And, and he, how appropriate that it's Hamlet. Yes, well. very. <laughs> and, um, 
and you know he's the best Scrooge. He's definitively yes, the best Scrooge. And you wouldn't guess for a second if you, if you isolated his performance, you wouldn't think he was playing against stuffed animals. No. He is Ebenezer Scrooge, and it's just utterly. Utterly wonderful. And Can you imagine how different the film would be if he played it for laughs and it was slapstick and oh, there were pratfalls? And I dread to think. I'm sure in more recent Muppet films, when they cast live actors in it, they do play it as yeah. a, a comedy character. But, oh, but that film, I think they, the they took it so seriously, it so yeah. beautiful. And I guess when you realise that it was a tribute to Jim Henson yeah. as much as it was An retelling the story, yeah. it, it makes perfect sense. And There's such a lot of deference in that film, both to the story. And to Jim Henson, yeah. at the risk of this being a book at breakfast, Jim Henson special. <laughs> well, um, I don't know if you... I only read this last year, and I don't know if you saw it too. There was an interview with the guy... I want to say Paul... No, I can't remember. Paul Williams? I don't know. The guy who wrote the soundtrack. Um, and again, you sort of, you're a bit nervous to read it in case they're sort of flippant, because... And not just... I mean, the score is, is mm. gorgeous. I don't know how you could be flipping um, about that. And it, almost in that sort of Howard Shaw way, I find it... Not so much the songs, I can... They're separate, they're part of the film, but I can't listen... So I can't read the book without thinking of the score from the Muppet film. Um, but they were you know, interviewing the guy who'd written the songs, and he was, he was a drug addict in the 80s. Miles Goodman. No, oh, I don't know where I got Paul Williams from. Miles Kudman. Anyway. <laughs> oh, no, hang on. With music and lyrics by Paul yeah, Williams. Sorry, it is, yeah, okay. the, the music and lyrics. I think the other guy was who did the score, but um, Paul Williams wrote the songs. Mm. And, yeah, he'd been a, he was a recovering drug addict. Mm. And, and he said, like we've been talking about, that he, he read the script. Read the script. He'd probably read the book, you know. <laughs> but he said it, the ending really resonated with him. Yeah, yeah. Of course he was. <laughs> but it really resonated with him as a recovering mm. addict. He said... Uh, Second the, spring. That idea that... You wake up and think, oh, my God, I've made so many mistakes, but I'm in control of the future. Mm. And he said, and it was a story of redemption. Again, it's it's it's, it's Scrooge's story. It's not Bob Cratchit's story or Tiny Tim's story. You know? And he said, and I wrote that's That's what I wrote all the songs about. Oh, wow. And it's amazing when you... I didn't know that. Especially Thankful Heart at the mm. end, you know, which is, is a direct line from the book. Because mm. he says to the ghost of Christmas yet to come, I will follow with a thankful heart. But um, that idea... Um, you know, oh, just the lyrics to that that last song. Um, you know, every day, what is it? Every night will end and every day will start with a grateful prayer and a thankful heart. And you could, again, you could put a religious spin on it, but he's actually, you know, saying, "I'm grateful that I'm here and I'm alive." You know, and just, and if you need to know the measure of a man, you simply count his friends. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And again, the. Um, the Marley's. <laughs> oh, Marley's. yes. Yeah. The Marley's um, song. And I love that they reference the Captive Bound and Double Ironed. I mean, when I've been rereading A Christmas Carol, a lot of it I can detach from The Muppet's Christmas Carol, but I cannot read The Marley's. Well, I can't read Marley without thinking of Marley and Marley. <laughs> I know. Well, and I'm just picturing The Muppets. I'm really section. glad you read the, the paragraph you did at the opening <laughs> because he says, Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. If I'd have had to read that on the spot, I would have said, I say it on my knees, Jacob and Robert, <laughs> on my <laughs> knees. Anyway, there was no Robert Marley. I was probably about 29 when I realised that Robert Marley was a joke. <laughs> oh, it's Bob Marley. Bob Marley yes. <laughs> Twenty nine. <laughs> but honestly, I would be here all day talking mm. about Muppet Christmas Carol. So I think it's time for us to record another DVD commentary track. Yes, <laughs> I think it is. So if you're a glutton yeah. for punishment, get over to our Bandcamp page and listen to us talking about Muppet Christmas Carol for an hour and a half. <laughs> 
There's perhaps uh, one more adaptation we need to mention. I mean, there are hundreds <laughs> of adaptations, but I'm thinking about an audiobook. Oh, my God. Well, this is the big one, mm. because in spite of the fact that Muppet Christmas Carol is my favourite film of all time, yes, one of those, I think now, for a long time, I would have told you it was the definitive adaptation, iteration, performance of A Christmas Carol, but I think I actually have a new favourite mm. um, and that is of course the audiobook narrated by none other than the Doctor himself Tom, Tom Baker. Baker if you haven't heard the Tom Baker Christmas Carol audiobook stop listening to A Book of Breakfast go and you will, <laughs> your life is about to improve tenfold it's on a well known um, <laughs> audiobook platform <laughs> Wait, Audio Go. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't think you can buy it on CD, can you? Not that anyone well, listens to CDs anymore. You can, but I think but, it's about £70. Pounds, oh, right. well, so. yeah, go Whereas it's just less than £8, as the pricing does tend to be on this popular audiobook platform. I signed up to that popular audiobook platform in 2013 to get this as my free book, but I got stuck. Mm. And... Did you find it audible when you signed up? Could you it hear was, it? Okay. I could hear it fine. No, it, okay. it, was, it was definitely audible, Excellent. yes. Excellent, okay. But, um, and even though I've said that Michael Caine is definitively the best Scrooge, Tom Baker sort of goes, he turns it up to 11 for the ending. Does. The entire book is wonderful, you know, wonderful sort of sorrow and melancholy, uh, but joy. The, the mm. unbridled joy at the ending when he is laughing, you know, the the, the, the quote you read about the father in a long yes. life. You just, about five minutes of Tom Baker. <laughs> it's just... I can't think of anything more wonderful. And you I just... wouldn't think that a man who was probably in his early 80s mm. when he did that would yeah. have such vivacity oh. as Tom Baker delivers that with. And it's a heartening lesson for us all that we can be like that. Yes. In many ways, that is the message of the book. And Absolutely. Tom Baker embodies it, and that's why it's so good. Because he embodies all that childlike joy in his performance. Beautifully said. That's it. We've done it. 12 books in 12 months. The unthinkable, the project we never thought we'd complete. I thought we'd be fine, actually. <laughs> I didn't think our aims were too diffuse. Well, what people don't realise is, although these episodes are seamlessly and succinctly <laughs> edited down into an hour to 90 minutes, we actually spend the majority of the <laughs> month recording these. We record hours and hours <laughs> Upon days, upon weeks of footage, <laughs> and Chris painstakingly edits them together. Well, actually, originally I painstakingly edited them together, but then I couldn't really be bothered anymore, so Chris gallantly took I found over. him weeping in a corner with a <laughs> headphone cable twisted around his neck, and I cut him free and then uh, released him from his misery. Had you not intervened, this would have ended up being a solo podcast. You would have just been talking to yourself. I thought I was this whole time. I thought you were a sort of Tyler Durden type. Um <laughs> We record the episodes quite away in advance, mm. and this Christmas one especially, the episode you just heard, we recorded way back in December 2021. Yeah. And then we did the rest of the series, because we wanted to record it whilst it was still Christmas. It's now December 2022, and we've done it. We've done the whole series. Woo! 
<clears throat> so if that, you're that only was, that was a crowd celebrating, <laughs> not a ghost. Was, it was October a few months ago, guys. A crowd of ghosts. Yes. It was Jacob Marley over your shoulder. Ooh. <laughs> that, that was Jacob and Robert Marley. We're Marley and Marley. Whoa. <laughs> um yeah, if you're only here for a Christmas carol, you can stop listening now because this is just us being self-congratulatory and uh, drinking victory beers. Welcome to the tat section. <laughs> this is solid gold. Thank you for sticking with us for 12 months, if you, if indeed you have. Um, the stats say that some of you have. <laughs> it's, a we- it's weird because even though we say that this is a Doctor Who podcast masquerading as a book podcast, it's sort of... We don't have a thing. We don't have a hook. If you really like Christmas Carol, you won't necessarily like our next book. Nah. Um, so I think we get a lot of people who just wander in and out because we're talking about a book they like. But we have got um, a core of regular listeners, which is really sweet. I've got the um, the app up here. And just, just to be self-indulgent and congratulatory, I'm going to run down our top 10 episodes uh, <clears throat> Not in terms of the ones I think are best. <laughs> the the top ten most played episodes. Number one. Sorry, I won't continue that. I'm just doing the top 40 countdown yeah. with Mark Goodyear sort of incidental <laughs> music. Our number one episode is The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, age 13 and three quarters. I'd like to think that's because it's the best, but I think in reality a lot of people listened to it and then decided they didn't want to listen any further. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was episode one. No, but that said, th- there aren't that many podcasts out there talking about Adrian Mole, whereas there are a hell of a lot of podcasts out there talking about things like Lord of the Rings and Doctor Who. So I think hopefully we might do another Adrian Mole book one day and people Why, will come back. Why might we? <laughs> uh, in second place by quite a substantial way, is The Lord of the Rings. Unsurprising. It's been a big year for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, and in third place, a real tortoise and the hare. I was surprised by this one. It's The Time Traveller's Wife. Ooh, at last. Now, when we it's launched... Crept up. Yeah, when we launched the podcast, it did... The first episode did really well and continued to get listens. And we thought, oh, this is great. People like this. And then we put out Time Traveller's Wife and within a week, it had about... 10 plays <laughs> and within a month it had had about 14 <laughs> plays and i remember thinking oh god we maybe we should knock this on the head people people aren't into this i don't know why it, it was such a slow burner but um then of course the time traveler's wife series came out later mm. this well earlier this year but later on in the year maybe that was part of it i don't know but it's like steadily steadily grown and grown so one day I thought, oh my god that's doing really well so that's third place in fourth place is the Lord of the Rings Part Two? <laughs> You'll never guess what's in fifth place. Is it the Rings of Power discussion? It is Lord oh, of the Rings Part Three. With the our Rings special of pa- guests. Yeah. So I think the Lord of the Rings episodes are quite popular. I, um, it'll be interesting to see if they continue to accrue listens and yeah. maybe even take Adrian Mole at some point. I think Lord of the Rings is gunning for Adrian Mole's mm. place. Yeah. Um, There's a mole in the uh, oh, in the, the camp. Yes. Um, Six, these aren't numbered, I think I've got it right. In sixth place is The Book Thief. Um, seventh place, I'm sort of surprised it's not higher in a way, uh, Doctor Who Rose. Oh, interesting. Well, again, we've got a big year coming up for Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if the viewers 
Sorry. Listeners well, creep up with that. I've just read that this month's issue of Doctor Who magazine is actually sold out. So I think there is definitely renewed interest. Well, well, um, when I can spoil it now, it's been months. Uh, when the 14th Doctor was... In, in fact, in our Rose episode, we had a stab at guessing who the 14th <laughs> Doctor would be. Uh, we were very wrong. We were very wrong. We guessed Nia Miller. It was, of course, David Tennant! <laughs> <laughs> David Tennant's the Doctor! Again! Um, overnight, after that regeneration, there was a massive... Uh, uh, no one, we hadn't had any plays on our Doctor episode since it went out in March of thereabouts. And then wow. suddenly overnight, it shot right up. Oh, so we did get a lot of yeah. people maybe just searching for Russell, because obviously the book we discussed was the novelization of yeah. Rose by Russell T Davies, who's back alongside David Tennant, a showrunner. And anyway, Shooty Gatway incoming as well. I'm very to- excited about Shooty Gatway. I've totally lost count. Oh, I think seven. seven. No, seven. This is appropriate. No. Day of the Tenant wasn't two, so uh, three, renowned four, for his counting. Six, seven, eight. Yeah, in eighth place, or little IV. You get him right now, I'm joking. Um, uh, Ocean at the end of the lane. Oh. Um, uh, ninth place is not what I expected to be in the top ten. Nothing to do with the quality of the book, only that it's uh, fairly obscure compared to all the other books we've done. In ninth place is Chingle Hall. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and tenth place, just mm. scraping in there, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. I would have thought Hitchhikers would be much higher up. Yeah. Um, obviously, Christmas Carol hasn't actually gone out yet. <laughs> it's going <laughs> out sure right now. It's going out right now. Uh, Frankenstein hasn't made the, the top ten, but then it's fairly, only a few weeks. Um, 1984 isn't in the top ten. Wow. Uh, and, and that was my mum's favourite, which, uh, you know, um, is like, when you do the ratings for a TV program and the audience appreciation index. Yes. My mum is the audience appreciation okay. index. <laughs> well, did she like the Boneland episode? Because I'm afraid to say that's our <laughs> that's our least played episode. I mean, it did fairly well. but it, it The Boneland episode is my audience appreciation mm. high scorer <laughs> because I am both a, a player and an audience member. I think... For that one. I think we should have called it the Weird Stone of Brisingerman brackets <laughs> the second sequel. I don't think most people know what Boneland is. No, alas. But I'm I mean, in terms of personal reflections, I'm probably proudest of the Boneland episode uh, out of all the ones uh, we've done. I ironically it it yeah. helps us get a lot of our kind of thoughts and philosophies about life mm. out. Um which Maybe isn't scintillating listening for everyone else, but I'm very glad we did it. We have to have one self-indulgent one. Ironically, for a book that no, well, most people haven't heard of, let alone read, I think it's one of the more accessible episodes because we talk about such broad themes about like creation myths and about memory and about. But anyway, um, but go and give it a listen. It's good. What's what's your problem? What what's your beef with Boneland? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, if you want to revisit. Um, the books that we've discussed this season but haven't got time to read them or listen to them we've put together uh, a book at breakfast series one playlist we're just going to be totally self-indulgent and go through it with you now (laughs) we kick off the playlist with what i like to think of as our theme tune that we would use at the top of the episodes if we uh, we're granted the copyright to do that but we'd have to pay the alan hull estate lots of money that we don't have (laughs) But number kicking off the playlist is Breakfast mm. by Alan Hull. 
In the morning you rise, light is still in your eyes. Moving <laughs> warm with contents, the memory of your body scent. People that are listening to that thing, what has this got to do with breakfast? It's, it's a song about adultery. <laughs> Listen to the chorus. It has nothing to do with any of the books, but, you know, it's a song about breakfast. Now, what should be the first song, or or at least the second after breakfast on this playlist, is uh, Profoundly in Love with Pandora by yeah. Ian Jury. But I made this on Spotify, Ooh. and it's not on Spotify. The, um, the, the soundtrack to the Adrian Mole musical is. But I couldn't really warm to that. Mm. Maybe it's because I haven't seen the show. I don't know. We should go and see it if it's touring again. Yeah, maybe. I'd I'd be nervous. But um what's interesting, like we, we didn't really plan the books for this in in any great with any great kind of pl- reasoning. It was just these were our favourite books, basically. Mm. Um, the books we wanted to talk about most, but it's been really weirdly appropriate. One, one thing that hadn't even twigged, that 2022, it's the 40th anniversary of uh, the publication of Secret Diary. Oh, right. Uh, no, and there's a, that. there's a celebration, there is, I really hope I can get to it, um, at the University of Leicester in the David Wilson oh. Library. There is an exhibition celebrating 40 years of Adrian Mole and they've got Sue Townsend's original manuscripts. Oh, wow. Um, but it's on till the 14th of January, 2023. So get to Leicester and take me with you. I really, But yeah, I, I hadn't twigged that it was a big year for Adrian Mole. And maybe that's why the musical's happening now. And Time Traveller's Wife, which came out in, what, 2004? Um, we got the HBO TV series penned by Stephen Moffat. Um, same with, I mean, Lord of the Rings is been fairly popular ever since it was published but this year it blew up with the amazon rings of power and even ocean at the end of the lane which came out in mm. 2013 this year we finally got the the stage play which we're going to see we're going shortly. to see very very soon um so yeah all the well, not quite all the books but most of the books suddenly felt very topical and that was really strange so uh, and there's the incoming boneland musical as well <laughs> you've written that haven't you yeah, yeah there's no lyrics it's um basically if anyone knows the pink floyd track atom heart mother with its wordless <laughs> chanting I'm and it's got tribal that. drums and it's it's actually the sound of bones playing on logs <laughs> it's very avant-garde i've got really high hopes so I've put the ticket prices very expensive because I think <laughs> exclusivity drives exactly, the prices up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm I'm predicting record audience numbers one way or the other. <laughs> but so the real track two on the playlist is the theme from the Time Traveler's Wife uh, by Blake Neely. Huh. He also he she they I'm not sure what mm. is is Blake Blake's a man's name is it? We can have a look. Blake Neely also did um, the Here the score is. for you. Huh. It's a man. Good old Blake. Um, he looks a bit like Sting. He does. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gorgeous theme tune. The whole um, score for that series is wonderful. And track three is, of course... Oh, Blister in the Sun. Sorry, I was still <laughs> looking at Blake Neely's profile. I kind of went down a rabbit hole of thinking, what else has he got? <laughs> but yeah, track three is... <laughs> I hit the table so hard, my phone has started playing the Doctor's it's theme. Serendipitously got onto the next song, is it? No, uh, not yet. Um, 
Yeah, that was like, almost. That, that was one of my beefs. Well, pretty much my only beef with the TV series actually is that it didn't have blister in the sun mm. in it. But I think they checked because it was set in the nineties, wasn't it? So they would have Henry would have grown up in the eighties. But I think the series was set present day, alas. Uh, and then next up is, of course, if you've listened to our Time Traveller's Traveler's Wife episode, you will know that one song had to be on the playlist. Ah, yes. Schubnicht for Mir by Rammstein. Don't die before I do. If you want to know why I've got Rammstein on here, go and listen to the Time Traveller's Wife episode. <laughs> I haven't got time to get into it again. I'll probably just start crying. Uh, and in a fit of pure self-indulgence, uh, I put on... Uh, the theme, Madame de Pompadour's theme from the Doctor mm. Who Series 2 soundtrack, because that was an episode written by Stephen Moffat, who obviously went on to do the Time Travellers TV series, and the episode famously was an homage to Audrey Niffenegger's book. When I say an homage, Stephen Moffat basically stole the plot. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think she minded. <laughs> no, actually, I, I watched an interview with her, actually, and someone, one of the questions was, how do you feel about the fact that Stephen Moffat has basically made a career for himself by <laughs> stealing your work? And she was really sweet. She said, I, I said, no, no, he always, always credits me. In every interview, he, he credits me as an influence. Oh. And, uh, and I said, I don't have a problem with that at all. I thought that's really sweet. They're friends, aren't they? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, certainly are now, having worked on the show together. Mm. Um, and Endlessly, she said, by AFI. I'm, I'm, this is this is honestly the last Time Traveller's Wife-related song, <laughs> just because that song always made me think of Claire at the end, mm. just waiting for for henry and that song that came out in 2006 so not long after the book came out and again kind of just bound up in my head with it and that's the playlist done with the time travel theme now there's no more pieces about time travel on there no more time travel <laughs> so next up is uh, the doctor's theme from doctor who so this is david tennant's version of the doctor theme what no it was christopher eccleston oh was it yeah oh yeah. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So, come on. David Tennant's back. Russell T. Davies is back. Phil Collinson's back. Julie Gardner's back. Please tell me that uh, Murray Gold is coming back. <laughs> that would make my Christmas, yeah. as Wilf would say. Oh. I mean, what can we say about those? Uh, I was about to say early, but they went on for years, over over a decade. But those Murray Gold Doctor mm. Who soundtracks are all just spectacular. And so we've got the Doctor's themes on there. Rose's themes on there. Uh, and next, 2 plus 2 equals 5. Yeah. Why, why a Radiohead on there? Well, they're famously <laughs> citing uh, George Orwell's 1984 in that title. And with the general artwork to that album as well. Mm, it's yeah. on Hail to the Thief. And uh, all the kind of slogans on the front seem like a, a clear nod to an Orwellian world. I didn't go over the top with 1984 because, remember, we, we have got a whole Book at Breakfast 1984 playlist, which you can listen to <laughs> from the link in our stories on mm. Instagram. Uh, and then, because after 1984, we did The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So, of course, there could only be one song. It's The Eagles and Journey of the Sorcerer, which was... Well, many people just know it as the theme tune to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah. and don't realise it's an Eagles track. But in the case of my dad... He it's just like seven knows it minutes as an Eagles long. track <laughs> and had no idea that it was used as the theme tune to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So oh, wow. we're introducing the two worlds there. God, get with the Eagles program. Eagles fans, it's time to... <laughs> Saw. Le- yeah. <laughs> oh, I like it, yeah. <laughs> okay, after that, we return to Radiohead. What? Uh, More Radiohead? Yes. 
Yeah, we've got Paranoid Android. Now, why could that be? Well, going back to the Hitchhiker's episode, I I couldn't exclude Paranoid Android because you said that was your introduction Mm. to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, asking your mum what Paranoid Android meant. And you know what? I was was, uh, reading the lyrics to it. You know, on Spotify, when it shows you, you you know, Mm. as you're listening, the robot voice in the background... Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you'll know this. It says, I may be paranoid, but I am not an android. Oh, I'd, I, no, I didn't know that. I, I'd never twigged what it was saying mm. before. I always thought it was saying paranoid loop android. I thought he just kept saying, one day, what is it? Ah. I may be paranoid, but I am not an android. Ah. There you go. Um, okay, so the next one is a bit of an anomaly. My favourite artist, <laughs> Jarek Bischoff. Um the, it's mo- all of these songs are sort of dripping with resonance and significance and nostalgia except this which I, I barely know and it's a track called The Ocean and it's from the soundtrack to the Ocean at the End of the Lane stage show mm. which we haven't seen yet but it, it, I couldn't think of anything to put on the playlist <laughs> that was relevant or to or synonymous with the ocean at the end of the lane but i'm hoping that once we've seen the play it will all fall into place and this will take on new and deep significance so if you're listening to this playlist in the future and that track has has been removed it's because it was rubbish (laughs) (laughs) no but the play has been getting fantastic reviews so i'm sure um, I'm sure we'll come away with this newfound appreciation for the score. It's difficult when you listen to the soundtrack to something mm-hmm. um, before seeing the, the film or the play or whatever to properly connect with it. Yeah. Although I remember um, when I went to the Rings of Power premiere mm. um, in London earlier this year, everyone in, in the queue around me was talking about how great the score was. Oh, interesting. And I deliberately hadn't listened to it. Yeah, I didn't know. listen until a few episodes had been on. And uh, and then I ended up meeting the composer, <laughs> Bear McCreary, who's ace and looks like a wizard. Uh, and he had some sort of person with him. I don't know if she was his agent or his handler or what. And, and she said, oh, so what do you think of the, of the soundtrack? <laughs> and I thought, I can't look Bear McCreary in the face until I, until I, I didn't listen to it. Didn't find... So I, I just gave a very enthusiastic smile that I hoped was kind of non-committal enough that I wasn't a liar. But also enthusiastic enough that it didn't crush his hopes and dreams. Did you do the Paul McCartney thumbs up? No, I did the Paul McGann grin. My, <laughs> my jaw's aching from smiling at him. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have seen right through the thumbs up. Um, but he was he was a really nice guy. Actually, why am I talking about Bear McCreary? I'm sure there won't be any Bear McCreary songs on here. Um, but yeah, so hopefully we'll we'll have a newfound appreciation of the ocean after having seen the stage play, which I'm really looking forward to. So. For our Doctor Who episode, I didn't put the Doctor Who theme mm. tune on. I put some about the Doctor's theme and Rose's theme because next is this is her the Doctor Who theme tune. A, a sort of tenuous link, very tenuous. So for Boneland, <laughs> our most popular episode, the um, the song I chose was Orbital's remix of the Doctor Who theme, yeah. or Doctor to give it its actual <laughs> title. You've got to pronounce that in a way that they can hear the question mark. Doctor? Mm. Um, why have I put the Doctor Who theme <laughs> as it, the Boneland song? Bearing it, in mind that some people listening might not know what Boneland is. So, 
<laughs> in Boneland, <laughs> the protagonist works at Jodrell Bank. And in a strange way to me and Chris, <laughs> Orbital are like the official band of, of Jodrell Bank. Yes. We saw them there at the Blue Dot Festival in 2017. And for the encore, members of the Radiophonic Workshop, who used to do the soundtrack <laughs> for Doctor Who, came on and did a version of the Doctor Who theme with them. So the Doctor Who theme, as well as being the official music for Doctor Who, is also the unofficial soundtrack to Jodrell Bank, of Where which... The protagonist of Boneland yes. works at. It makes, so it makes total sense. sense. Yeah. Obviously, Alan Garner intended for the orbital version of the Doctor Who theme to be the soundtrack to Boneland. It couldn't be more crystal clear. I'm glad we cleared that one up. I'm a bit unsure about the next one as well, to be honest. Really? Um. Oh, I was... Right, okay, yeah, I've got it. It's Lord of the Rings, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It's, yeah, <laughs> what okay. else could it be? Cause, cause because we declared, I talk about we, it. Yeah, yeah, we declared this to be the unofficial anthem of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, High Hopes by Pink Floyd. So I was looking at this thinking... How does this one connect with Boneland? <laughs> but no, it doesn't. This is discussed in the Lord of the Rings episode, and it is a wonderful, beautiful piece of music. And next up, we've got This Wandering Day by uh, Bear McCreary, who um, has been mentioned very recently. Have you been paying attention? Will you pass the quiz at the end? Um, for a bonus point, who sings This Wandering Day? I think it might be Megan Richards, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost like you're looking at the playlist. <laughs> yeah, Megan Richards, who plays Poppy in uh, Ah, right, okay, Rings of Power. Yeah. Um, I love that song. As I've said, I'm not in love with the Harfoot's slightly weird accents. But you know what? I rewatched um, The Return of the King the other day. And, the, and I, maybe a bit... There are some dodgy accents in that, let's just yeah. say. <laughs> um, but I just... I loved that song. And I love... Like, the audacity initially people said oh they can't like there won't be hobbits in this new lord of the rings tv series because it's set in the second age of middle earth and nothing is known about the hobbits then and they didn't live in the shire and in very briefly in in the prologue in concerning in concerning hobbits it says little is known uh, of them before their wandering days <laughs> and i love that they've taken that sentence and made a whole community out of it <laughs> and a song and also Without wanting to go on too much, one of the things that I missed in Rings of Power, obviously you get massively in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films, is that most of the dialogue in the films is just cut mm. and paste from the book. That's why it's so great. But because what they're adapting for Rings of Power isn't a novel, it's just like a written history, there are no sort of properly fleshed out characters mm. with dialogue. So the dialogue is all scripted by people who aren't Tolkien, and it shows. Mm. And that's not really a criticism because, you know, saying you're not Tolkien is not really a fair criticism <laughs> of anyone. Um, but in, in the lyrics to This Wandering Day, you get that little bit at the end, that not all who wonder and wander mm. are lost, which is, of course, a little nod to the Aragorn poem. And it, I don't, it just, it, you know, it really got me. It really pulled on my heartstrings yeah. and it made me think of, uh, I don't know, in the Lord of the Rings episode, we talked about Led Zeppelin and all those other bands that kind of nodded to Tolkien the lyrics. It was really, really sweet. And then followed, of course, by Where the Shadows Lie by Bear McCreary and... Fiona Apple. Apple. Yeah. I was really surprised when I heard that because yeah. I was listening to the soundtrack piecemeal. So yeah. well, I let myself listen to a little bit more of this each week. I bet you see, because sh- I, I was doing that, but about halfway through I started listening. And this was like a secret track. 
because oh. it was on there right at the end as where the shadows lie instrumental and i remember ah. thinking why is it called instrumental when, when there's no vocal version because this is the instrumental oh, version is that. what plays over the credits of mm. the first episode right oh interesting because it was kind of a shock to me because i I do like some Fiona Apple stuff. Like her mm. last album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, was really good. Right. Um, and I heard it and I thought, is that Fiona Apple singing? And it was really <laughs> exciting. And it kind of, not knowing that, kind of softened the blow of it coming to an end because I was oh, kind of like yeah. breathing out the sigh and I was like, oh, this is exciting. And also having, a, you know, a, a song with lyrics sung over the final yeah. credits. It, it was very back to the lineage of the Peter Jackson. Very films. Peter Jackson, a nice little nod, and of course, talking of end credits of Peter Jackson films, <laughs> we've got "May It Be" by Enya, which is probably, and I know it's kind of like the first one, so mm. it's always hard to unseat, but probably my favourite. Although that yeah. said, I, I mean, I love "Crowded House" and I love the. Neil I was going to say for, for you, Hobbit. Neil Finn, um, and I think "Into the West" is absolutely mm. gorgeous. Um, but I, I think you're probably right. But I would say, I don't know. Sometimes I actually think um, Billy Boyd's "The Last uh, Goodbye" yeah. is the most poignant for me in some ways. I mean, they're all great, apart from mm. the Ed Sheeran one, which can <laughs> buff. I'll bleep that out. <laughs> Um, yes, I know that isn't on here. <laughs> well, we didn't do The Hobbit. I mean, sh- I'm sure if we ever do The Hobbit, um, the playlist will be all Ed Sheeran. <laughs> because he is a hobbit. <laughs> he can only dream of being a hobbit. <laughs> uh, uh, the next one is Contentious. Because mm. um, basically I've put whatever songs I like on here because they remind me of the books. What well, I know that the author of the book would expressly uh, disapprove of this interesting but it's my playlist so i put it on anyway i mentioned in the chingle hall episode that i read various drafts of the book mm. uh, and in the earliest draft uh, the song haunted by the pogues is referenced in the lyrics uh sorry the lyrics are referenced in the book and in my heart and in my head it became the absolute anthem for chingle hall and then she changed <laughs> Did the um, Pogues do a version of this? Yeah, but without Shane. The, the, the version on Spotify, mm. I'm afraid to say, it is my favourite version. Is Shane McGowan and the Popes, and it's Shane McGowan singing with uh, Sinead O'Connor, ah. and it's gorgeous. But the um, the uh, the Pogues version is with Spider. It is Spider, isn't Spider it? Spider Stacy, was it? No, what was her name? Something O'Ridian. Kate O'Ridian. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, anyway, um, but yeah, it's no it's no longer one. Of, it's not even on the Chingle Hall official playlist, <laughs> but it's on mine. So mm. there you go. Uh, and then, of course, Dead Souls by Nine Inch Nails. Who... I mean, I should have put the Joy Division on, one on, really, <laughs> but... It kind of feels appropriate to me because I, I love Nine Inch Nails yeah. and I saw them live not long before we recorded the Chingle Hall episode. Oh, yeah. Um, and they didn't play that, but... <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll but delete it. It was a very Nine Inch Nails time, so the yeah. kind of synchronicity of it feels right for me. And then sticking with the world of gothic music. <laughs> the original goth song. <laughs> Monster Mash. By, I mean, if you'd asked me who did Monster Mash, 
I probably wouldn't have been able to answer. Oh, really? This playlist in front of me, <laughs> but it is Bobby Boris Pickett. Not the Misfits. <laughs> um, and then penultimately, mm. it had to be when love is gone. Um, Give the, it the airing it deserves. Yeah, of all the of all the joyful songs on the Muppet Christmas Carol soundtrack, we've gone for the most miserable. But we talked about it so much. Um, it's been a while since we recorded the the first half of this episode, so I can't quite remember because we recorded our discussion on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, but we also have recorded as a bonus Christmas treat a Mm. a DVD commentary track for The Muppet Christmas Carol because there was just so much to say about it. So I can't remember if we discussed this in the episode. I suspect not. I think it's just on the commentary. But we talked about uh, a song that was deleted from the theatrical cut of Muppet Christmas Carol, and was accidentally released on the VHS version that we had as kids. Mm. Um, and we would always fast forward through it as, you know, the, the boring, dreary love song. But then it's amazing rewatching it uh, on DVD and streaming it as an adult, how it upsets the pacing. Mm. And, you, and you really need... So I, w- I won't go on about it because we talk about it at length in our Muppet Christmas Carol episode. But um, I was amazed. As I say, we recorded the earlier part of this episode last December it's been sitting in the vaults wait waiting for its time (laughs) um but it's now December 2022 and I've just seen that over the years I'm not the only one who's come to appreciate the integrity of Bell's When Love Is Gone and it's been reinstated so apparently if you stream A Muppet Christmas Carol on Disney Plus this December it will be the complete version with the missing song finally restored after almost 30 years um i was really pleased to hear that again something about this season we're up we're on the zeitgeist <laughs> let's see if we can keep it up so that was that's kind of the last song because it's the christmas carol song but every good show has an encore but yeah i thought well we had we had our our opening theme tune with breakfast by alan hall so i thought surely we need uh an end credits mm. theme and of course it's the wonderful, beautiful English Tea by Paul McCartney. It is such a lovely, sweet, warm-hearted song. It's amazing. You used to sing it all the time. Yeah. I was thinking, Nanny Bakes, Fairy Cakes. I was thinking, what is he singing? I Didn't... remember singing it in Paris when we first went. <laughs> and I think it was, it, it was our first time going abroad together. And we were both a little bit homesick for England. And I kept singing yeah. this song kind of wistfully. So I always associate it with walking around the streets of Paris, even though it is the most quintessentially <laughs> English of songs. That's lovely. And talking of tea, we said uh, earlier in this episode, or rather you said, that we should talk about the tea we were drinking because we haven't talked about tea much, <laughs> uh, which has proved to be a lie. We talked about nothing else for most <laughs> of the episodes. And while we're on corrections, I realised that in, in Frankenstein last month, I said, um, I talked about the fact we were drinking green tea and said it was the mm. first time we'd, we'd had something other than just standard tea. Breakfast tea, as but, it's often referred but to. But we, um, I was completely wrong because in the Hitchhikers episode, we made quite a big point about drinking Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a liar. There you go. I also lied about the Doctor's theme only 15 minutes ago, saying it was yeah. Chris Drackleston. Uh, well, the other way around. 
Um, so I, we're both guilty. Here's, here's another thing we're both guilty of. It's quite funny. I messaged you the other night. In our Lord of the Rings episode, I read uh, a quote from The Two Towers about a statue with a fallen king's head and a coronal of silver. And we said, isn't it a shame that they didn't put that scene in the film? And then I watched it the other night. It turns out they did. <laughs> We'd just forgotten it was there. This is a bit like the apology section where yeah. um, in the second Adrian Mole book, which... Uh, <laughs> We, we may discuss at greater length at uh, some point <laughs> in the future. There's a section where um, there's oh, the some newspaper about printing Hitler's diaries. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then it turns out they're false and the <laughs> Times print an apology about it. So now we're doing our apologies. We are. Although, in my defense with the Lord of the Rings thing, it's, it's in the, the quote I read was from The Two Towers. And I'd recently watched The Two Towers and knew it wasn't in it. But of course, they put it in Return of the King. So, mm. I mean... I didn't know. I didn't know. So you weren't to know, man. What's this about the growing pains of Adrian Mole? Well, yes. What What is it about the growing pains of Adrian Mole? I mean, we started last series with the first Adrian Mole, but the secret diary of Adrian Mole, our most popular were, episode. Were we to do a, a second series, it would only seem fortuitous. Oh, that we should start it, it with Hitler's diaries. <laughs> That's right. So, exclusively here, we can reveal that through a book at breakfast series two, we'll be covering Mein Kampf. Oh no, no, no! They're they're fake. Ah, right. Okay, mm. okay. Can you think of anything else? Well, maybe we should do the book that spawned them, The Growing Pains <laughs> of Adrian Mole by Sue Townsend. It only seems right, doesn't it, for the forty-first anniversary of Adrian Mole. Um, so yeah, thank you to everyone who's listened. I'm not sure why you've listened, but we've enjoyed prattling on about books and we're going to carry on doing that. Yeah. Kind of a bit of a break, um, but we'll be back in a couple of months. Sooner than you think. <laughs> but until then, Merry Christmas. And I don't plug this enough, so I really should. I'm going to, if you want to support the podcast, um, you can give us a few quid on Ko-Fi. There's a link to it. Uh, in our website uh, or our, our bio on Instagram and you can follow us at Book at Breakfast it's that easy or subscribe to A Book at Breakfast on whatever platform you get your podcasts um, and I'll be putting a link up to our Series 1 playlist in our Instagram st- Instagram stories along with uh, Zowie's Chingle Hall playlist and our 1984 playlist and yeah keep following us for bonus episodes we've got some commentary tracks up on our soundcloud not Bandcamp, as previously <laughs> advertised i won't bore you with the details it was much easier to do soundcloud so yeah but yeah just go to the link in our instagram bio everything's there that you need our soundcloud our sound clowned what's one of those our soundcloud uh, our ko-fi account and most importantly links to all our episodes that you can listen to for free on repeat forever 